and welcome to This Board Game Life, episode number 7, TableCon 2012, part 1. Coming to you from the new board game capital of the world. This is the show about the board game hobby, as seen through the eyes of two gamer guys. I'm Rob, and with me today in the opposite corner of the ring is Tyrannosaurus Rex, Jeff. Hey, everybody. How do you like that name? It's a good name. I like yeah. that name. You know, I, I wanted to toss Rex in there, but you know, I, I can't say Rex without saying Tyrannosaurus. And you guys will see, uh, you know, pretty soon, soon enough, why uh, why we're talking about Rex there. So uh, we got uh, a whole bunch of uh, interesting stuff planned for the show, and uh, let's get going. Covering a, what we like to call a newsworthy item, something I ran across on Kickstarter. Everybody loves to talk about Kickstarter. Uh, me, not so much, but this one was interesting to me. Uh, any any of you long-term gamers might remember a property called Shadowrun? Oh, yeah, from back in the day. Yeah, it was. Uh, this is a... Uh, well, let me get to the news first, and then I'll give the background. But yeah. essentially, they've launched a Kickstarter campaign to... Bring Shadowrun, uh, Shadowrun back to PCs and and tablets. They've sort of implied as well in a, an authentic recreation of the RPG property. Mm-hmm. And uh, particularly, the reason I bring it up is because not really from the video game news perspective, but one of the perks, the highest level perk, is uh, to to get uh, Mike Mulvihill. I may have said his name wrong, but I believe it's Mike Mulvihill. Uh, he's the one who led the Shadowrun game development at FASA. 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 So they were the ones who originally published all the RPG material and such. Oh, yeah. And now, he... did they get bought out or did, did oh they yes, just many, go many, under? many many times there. Uh, he's actually on that page. He's got this little arrow chart of the like eight different companies the property went to yeah. uh, that he managed to get the rights back to his own game to do this. But in any case, the highest level reward is he will personally come to your hometown and run a tabletop game of Shadowrun for you and five of your friends. For the low, low, well, you know, they actually, I should point out, they even say he'll bring some snacks. Okay? <laughs> so okay. what would you imagine would be the price tag on that kind of thing? Two grand. Ten. Ten, Ten. grand. Ten grand. That's silly. And this is why I had to bring this up. Okay, but they didn't have just one slot for this. No, they had, not two, three. Three slots for this at $10,000. They're all sold out already, immediately sold out. Yeah. $30,000. So so whoever says there's no money in in, uh, board gaming, well, they're right. Apparently it's all in RPGs, right? So $30,000 this guy just made to, to game for three nights. I, I need this job. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I don't know if there isn't if that's not a Kickstarter success. Uh, you know, he's already got half a million dollars or whatever. You know, board board games dream of that kind of money too. But uh, you know, half a million in, in total for the Shadowrun project, and and that's only a few days in. Uh, you know, I don't know if it's been a week quite yet, but in any case, uh, thirty thousand dollars for three nights. Yeah. 
That's pretty impressive. I would never have guessed that many. I mean, it's at the point where I imagine he might open more of these slots. Yeah, maybe. And... See, now, does that include shipping? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I guess he's got to get on an airplane. Uh, well, you know, maybe he needs to be packaged. Okay, so what if it's international? So, you know, international shipping is usually a lot more. I mean, do you have to Yeah, you know, I, I guess I didn't read uh, re- it. There wasn't any more depth to the... You know, there it might have been on another page in more detail, but yeah, I wonder if you if you spend that and you live in you know Australia, if he's getting on a plane and, and flying to Australia, I I suppose for ten grand you could you know why not? But but I was I was actually thinking and I I made a post on BGG about this too, but it's since it's puts the strict requirement of you and your and five of your friends, you know how much it would suck to be like somebody's sixth best friend, right? Which is yeah, which is the story of my life. I'm everybody's sixth best friend, right? So. <laughs> You know, I, I get to hear about how they had this guy, you know, who who's the game developer for Shadowrun, but you know, they they got to have an adventure run by him. But of course, I wasn't there. Of course so, not. I don't know why the limit. I don't remember enough about the game. Maybe there's some reason, you know, that's the maximum party size or something like that. But um, so back to what it is for those that don't know, uh, Shadowrun is kind of the only property that comes to mind not that there haven't been copycats but it's basically uh they describe it even as, i don't can't think of a better explanation than theirs which is blade runner meets lord of the rings so it's sort of the cyberpunk you, you know you have like elf biker gangs you know and and you know, just stuff like that so it's it's really a unique setting it's really kind of different and cool magic interwoven with you know cyberpunk type stuff Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the only sort of recent entry has been a Xbox 360 game, which was a first-person shooter, which really conveyed none of the feel of the property, um, you know, in the role-playing sense. But I actually thought it was a pretty good Xbox 360 game, just, again, because it's kind of that, that neat combo between the two. It was mostly a multiplayer-only game. But in any case, I'm a big Shadowrun fan. I'm, I'm not going to back the game because I don't, I don't do enough with the video game stuff. Right. To really care, but I, I thought it was cool, especially the RPG angle and and the thirty thousand dollars. So that's why I mention it here. So that was Shadowrun, uh, where as they say, man meets magic and machine. You know, briefly talking about those Kickstarter projects, there's that Double Fine one that uh, closed what about a month ago? Did you hear about that one? Which one is this? Double Fine. No. Double Fine uh, Adventure. That was one because I think Shadowrun's like at eight hundred thousand now. Is it? Yeah, it's. A, I'm sure it's growing like crazy. Yeah, and it's still got like another two three weeks to go. Double Fine Adventure. Uh, that one closed mid March, and it had almost ninety thousand backers. Wow! Yeah, it's another video game one, and they their goal was to do four hundred thousand total, and they did three point three million. Yeah, and I, I, that's what's odd about the the um, Shadowrun one because he the video shows his whole studio and he's got you know it looks like he's got maybe ten employees. He's they're only saying five or four hundred grand minimum. It seems like you'd need a lot more money than that just to pay everybody and you know take the time that it would take to do this. But but yeah, I mean I'm sure they have funding from some other sources and pro- this is probably just that much additional funding they need to make it an even better game. Uh, you know, take it to the next level. Everybody kind of complains about games being rushed out too soon, right? A lot of times that's for financial reasons. So I can almost 
I, I almost like that use of Kickstarter better than what happens in the board game world, right? Where where you're contributing 100% of the funds, so there's no risk in it for them is the argument, right? Where here it's like, yeah, they've already got a couple million bucks or you know something like that. They just need that much more that's going to allow them to have the time they need to really polish the product. Uh, it's not like there's no risk in it for them. Oh yeah. So I think maybe that's the difference and. You know, you still have some of the cool benefits. There's some special in-game stuff that you don't get any other way. So, you know, which I wonder, I wonder what video gamers think of that, right? Because that's the board game equivalent to the, to the promo you can just never get. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, if I've got this in-game special ability because I backed it, it's pretty pretty certain nobody else is going to ever be able to have that, unless there's yeah. some kind of code I can eBay, right, or that type of thing. Right. But yeah, you know, somehow I guess. It's not frowned upon quite like it is, but you know maybe maybe that's because in the video game world, you know, in, in six months' time, I'm done with the game. You know, it's not sitting on a shelf, never to be played again. Where a board game in five years, ten years' time, I may still well be playing it. And so then to still be missing out after all that time, you know, on a, on something others have that I don't, maybe that's the difference. I don't know. Yeah, with uh, the Double Fine game, it's very similar to Shadowrun where. If you pledge ten grand or more, uh, you get lunch with Tim Schafer and Ron Gilbert. Tim Schafer, he was uh, Full Throttle, uh, Grim Fandango. That was uh, another one right at the same time, and Day of the Tentacle. Okay, yeah, I've heard of a lot of those, but I haven't played yeah. them. Well, but, I guess it's interesting to know that there's other video games out there that that have these ten thousand dollar levels. I, I just I try to imagine what kind of person has $10,000 to spend on yeah. something like as frivolous as that. Yeah, and with Double Fine, they had four slots, and all four were sold out. And so that was lunch, a uh, tour of the Double Fine offices, and some other stuff which uh, was too big to list. Yeah, because I mean, I'm trying to think for me, like, if I had to, I have to find something video game wise, I was a huge, huge fan of would be something like Ultima from uh, uh, Origin Systems. Way back when, and Richard Garriott, you know at all what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. You know, even even Ultima Online was like the first uh, MMO I played, just right. ridiculously heavily. You know, so like if they had a, if they were bringing that back, and and it was you know go to their studios and um, meet all of them and have input into the game. I mean, it'd have to be that involved, right? And and like my likeness in the game, and you know, help develop a storyline for my character, and I'm a part of that, and I could then I still wouldn't do it, but <laughs> I could almost see what the attraction would be because now this is like a lifelong event where you know I'm in, even in ten years time I was just still always a part of the story that I that I really enjoyed or loved and I'm part of the the mythos and it helped um, you know it's still kind of backwards though I mean people should get paid to do that so in this case I'm paying to do that it's kind of wrong right yeah you're <laughs> you know? buying. You're buying your way into it. Yeah, like pretending to be a, a software developer, right? It's similar with board game stuff, right? Like, do I do I really want to design, uh, I don't know, a Thunderstone card or set of cards, right? I pay for that privilege, you know? Yeah. I don't know. It's like, isn't it? If I were any good at that, and not saying I'm not, right? I mean, but if I've done my share of board game design stuff, but the whole idea is, you know, you get paid, not pay somebody else to do it. So. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's really interesting how... But know, it's it's brilliant. Just, 
it's brilliant yeah. how the Kickstarter thing works that people just get caught up in that. And then you feel like somebody else is going to get that. And I want I want to get that maximum level. I need to get everything. I want the, the autographed um, stuff. I want the, the poster, the original artwork, you know, framed. I want, I want, I want, I want, I mean, there's an endless amount of stuff. I think it's, if people will spend 10,000, then what's next? The $20,000 level, right? I mean, it, there's, there doesn't seem to be a limit to what there's somebody out there that they will pay. Oh yeah. And I mean, it's so easy to get caught up in that. Cause I went and I got in on the D day dice one, uh, that was out a couple months back. And, you know, I sat there and I'm like, man, you know, you know, if you, I just go up one level, I get all this extra stuff. And uh, I know and I'm like, what am I doing? <laughs> well, and it's, that's funny you mentioned that one because that was one I, I saw, I think I clicked on the first banner ad. I'm like, really a, a, a dice rolling war game, you know, that isn't really even a war game. It's like couriers meets memoir. I don't know. I mean, yeah. I, I know very little about it because when I first clicked through and read about it, I'm like, this doesn't sound like the game for me at all. And then I sort of dismissed it. And then I, by the time I came back to it and realized there had been all this hype and all this other stuff, and actually was it kind of got interested at that point to, to certainly obtain a copy and see what it was all, all about and if it was any good. Well, of course, the Kickstarter was over, and now people want $200, you know, for their Kickstarter pledge and whatnot. Um, and, and, you know, so I'm looking at these pictures that just show, you know, this table full of stuff that you, you're getting. And I'm going, oh, yeah, this is awesome. This is, why I, this is why I need to get this. And then I'm realizing, you know what? I still know just about nothing about the game. Right. <laughs> but suddenly I want it where I didn't before just because there's all this stuff. But, you know, does this all this stuff make for a great game? Is it, is it even necessary? Is it just frivolous extra stuff that's of no value to the game and, and adds nothing? Or, or is this really good? You know, meat and potatoes additions to um, to what might already be an, an awesome game. I, you know, I don't know. Um, yeah. It's it's but that's part of the Kickstarter way. It just I you know, it was interesting to see where this goes, where this ends up in another year's time. If it's even more out of control, or if it if it kind of gets reined into something that resembles yeah. more of the way we used to see things, but. Right. But using that, the video game analogy, right, where they're looking for 400 grand, regardless of how much they get, you know, I see something like Queen, who just recently released two titles on Kickstarter, and I'm immediately suspicious, and here's why, because the two titles they released, as well, more so in the case of Edo, doesn't look like the potential best out of this line of, of maybe the eight or nine they've announced, right? It's the most pasted-on-looking theme, right? It's the most mechanically boring-looking one of a number of them, at least to me. So I kind of see why it showed up on Kickstarter. You know, I, I'm curious why they all aren't on Kickstarter, is I, where I guess I'm going with this, unless they're they're just going to eventually do them all, which I don't know, maybe is curious in a different way. But, but assuming it's these two... Uh, you know, it's kind of, okay, we need to feel if there's even a market for this and how much. And we we didn't have the confidence in the game on our own, so now right. we'll have it because we get the money. That's the part of Kickstarter I don't like, especially for major publishers. What I would like is to see them go, okay, we're publishing, uh, you know, I don't know, whatever, the Kingdom Builder expansion anyway, but we're going to start a Kickstarter campaign, and if we can raise ten or $15,000, we're going to pimp this game out to just no end, right? We're going to have, you know, I don't know, leather dice bags and whatever it is, you know, twice double thick tiles and, you know, just all, we're going to not add all this frivolous 
you know, bonus cards right. and promos and stuff, but we're just going to make the quality of the game something beyond what we would otherwise risk. The game's getting published either way, but if enough people like it, it's going to be this extra, you know, almost semi-collectible level quality. That right. that I could really get behind, and that I could really see supporting even really just any publisher with a concept like that. You know, even if it was Fantasy Fight, and, go, and, and, and Fantasy Flight goes... Uh, they'll be painted, right? I mean, there's no way we would we would launch uh, Gears of War with painted minis or Nexus Ops, but we'll put it up on Kickstarter. And you know what? If if twenty thousand dollars gets raised, sure, we'll do pre-painted versions. Right. That makes sense to me as as a, a crowdsourcing sort of concept. You know, I, I definitely like that idea. There's, um, you know, been a couple publishers that have been doing Kickstarter projects for the past year or so. And, uh, I don't know. I, I kind of look at it and go, you know, this, I, I don't, I don't really like what they're doing because, you know, initially I saw Kickstarter kind of like the thing where, you know, it's something that the little guy would use, you know, they use the you know crowdfunding, whatever you want to call it. Use that crowdsourcing. And they'd use that and, you know, be able to get, their product out in front of people when normally they have no chance. And when I see these publishers, and there's there's a couple of them that do one after another, well, it, it seems like it's what what actually the system that, but more so, I think it actually hurts the small guy because, well. Or maybe it helps them. I don't know. I was because on one level, I would say the sort of perceived success that some people have of Kickstarter. It, it may as well just be the, the games that were going to, you know, the Tasty Minstrel games that were maybe they would have come out slower and not as many as a time, but they were basically going to be released anyway, or the Queen games. Uh, you know, if you look at a lot of the ones that were done by the smaller names, the that School for Girls one, and, you know, there's quite a few others that were really weren't well received. You know, I wonder if there is as good a track record as some people think. And even if you look at a game like Alien Frontiers, that's the kind of game, you know, I it may well have been picked up uh, by somebody, right? Right. I mean, it may, it's not going to be a Fantasy Flight title, but there's other smaller publishers. You know, even a Tasty Minstrel or the Minion Games or, the, so, you know, whoever it was that was doing a couple of games before Kickstarter, some of those games would have been made anyway. It's, it's not like this is the only reason we get to see them. Right. Yeah, so uh, there's been a couple of uh, videos lately that have gotten a little bit of uh, newsworthiness to them. You know, first off, on April 2nd, uh, Wesley Crusher, also known as uh, Will Wheaton in his uh, real life, he uh, has uh, a new show on the, was it Geek and Sundry? Sounds right. Yeah, Geek and Sundry channel on YouTube, which I believe is Felicia Day's uh, channel. I remember right. So he's got a new show that he put together called Table Talk. And basically what it is... Isn't it Tabletop? Tabletop? Yeah, I'm sorry. Tabletop. (laughs) Tabletop. That just shows what a bad name you picked, Mr. Wheaton. (laughs) Maybe Table Talk was trademark, so we should get on that. So basically what it is is uh, he and a couple of famous people... You know that he knows. You know whether it's some actors that he's worked with. They all they all get together, and they have a a game session of sorts, and they explain how to play 
a particular game. So the first show came out on April 2nd, and they covered Small World. Ah, you're joking. It's, it was a few acres of snow. It was Agricola. <laughs> no, uh, Advanced Squad Leader. That, that was the one. Yeah. It was a very big table. Okay, so, you know, they, they covered uh, Small World, and it was interesting. You know, they had uh, some nice video effects. They went through, and, uh, you know, the whole show lasted about half an hour. Will did a very, I, I want to say, because you saw it, Jeff, right? I watched a portion of it, yes. So enough to to have a verdict or opinion anyway. Okay. Well, just if any of our listeners here haven't seen the show yet, uh, basically they covered Small World and Will Wheaton explained the game. I think everybody and, watched it. There was like half a million hits at, at one point when I checked it last. So. Well, my son didn't watch it. Oh, there you go. Or was it a quarter? It was. I think it was a quarter of a million when I last. I bet your I bet your son didn't watch it either. No. So that's two people right there didn't watch it. So, you know, they, they, he did a pretty nice job of explaining the rules, and you know, he tried to make it interesting by having little voices to the. Uh, what do they call those? Uh, those Cardboard uh, chits. They, they. I didn't see that part. They were, they had little voices when they were talking. Well. Though, you know those guys. I can't remember for the life of me what the name of those guys are. They're okay. those little populations that you put like one chit. Oh the, yeah, the, the, the little the they look like little children. I forget what they're called too. Yeah. Yeah, it's just you know one guy to wipe out. Yeah, so you know he would make little noises when they get pulled off, like no. Yeah, he tried. <laughs> that, that's the fourth acting people were talking about. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so overall. Uh, I got kind of bored halfway through. I, I don't know. I I didn't finish it. I'm sorry. Yeah. But, well, uh, you made it further than I did. But for for me, I mean, the things I would say, wonderful production value. I mean, I would hire all the people that worked on the show. Absolutely I mean, fantastic. I'm, I'm sure they're probably not getting paid to do it, and it's for their portfolio. And obviously, that's you know whether it was needed or not when they had all the different uh, you know rules on the screen where they had the different races and stuff and they were going through all that i mean that, that was all very well done very well edited uh it's different camera angles different you know just all of it was really the production was superb i you know i even would say will and friends overacted scripted or not i still got to compare it to anything else out there right so they they at least had emotion and enthusiasm faked or not right it, it was yes interesting and personable at that level you know the other thing and, and some some have kind of insulted the show a little bit i guess because it didn't really render a verdict or wasn't so much a review as it was a play session well i don't know that he really claimed it was going to be a review show yeah. and i think we have enough review shows so i on that level i think it's awesome spectacular that hey there's this other way to decide if a game is for you or not and and there was lots of feedback to that too a lot of Absolutely. people were like oh i've watched video reviews and i just never thought it would be for me but now watching them play it gee it sure does seem fun and i didn't realize there was as much to it i actually thought it was kind of a simpler game but there seems to be you know quite a different variation with the races and you know so it's simple yet strategic or whatever you know the case might be that you you pick up while watching this hour-long session that you go, you know, I want to have the fun they're having, and so now you go buy it where you wouldn't have otherwise. And that includes a ton of people that BGG, not the least of which are um, 
you know, some of them are heavier gamers that had dismissed right. the lighter title. And then, of course, then there'll be other people that don't know anything about gaming, but uh, were fans of the um, StarCraft game that the one guy, you know, has a big show on and, and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So, um, and that's kind of neat, exposing other people to gaming, board gaming, different type of gaming. And I, I'll be surprised if the second show gets nearly the same amount of, of views as that first one, because uh, I think there are the, the video gamers and stuff that... Uh, percentage of them are going to fall off you know the not watch again but maybe i mean i guess if the show does continue up with that number of views that even more indicates success uh with the crowd outside of the core crowd that pretty much already know about the game anyway but yeah you know that all said i really have i have nothing negative to say about the show at all other than it's just not for me so you know i mean like for me it's a completely worthless i mean all of the games are going to cover i've obviously i own them or have played them so there's no real benefit for me to watch the show there's nothing for me to learn i I, at that point i'd rather play than watch them play right so yeah but it doesn't mean i don't see value in the show for some other segment of of people and the way that they're going about it and Mm -hmm. good job mr wheaton Oh, absolutely. And I'm really interested to see which direction they're going to take it, especially after the, let's say, criticism of the first show. Well, and I, Yeah, I don't think they're going to make any changes because my understanding is the first season is pretty much filmed and is just being maybe edited, if anything. Okay. So unless the change is done in the editing process, I think they're pretty much finalized what they've filmed. My curiosity would be more the second season, what, like, it almost seems like there aren't going to be enough games to keep up with the light nature of what's in the, I mean, the first season's the easy one, because you got Catan and small, you have all sort of these classic go-to games that are really been built up over the last 10 years, so now you go to season two, you don't have any, any of those easy ones, does he go to something like a Kingdom Builder, or does he branch out more, and can he still get these board gamers that have played less or has he hooked people enough that these same kind of people will show up on the show and, and be looking for more. Okay. You know, we played ticket to ride last year. I want to, I'm, I'm ready for deeper games this year and right. it's, it's year three. You know, I want to, I actually want to try that lighter war game or that, you know, that heavier economic uh, year or something. I, you know, I don't know. It's, it, it just seems like if they, at some point they'll run out of games you know, I guess or, I guess there's always the filler variety. They could do plenty of those. There's probably an endless supply of lighter games there. Or if they're going to do something like, you know, let's say they play, you know, a really light card game, and then they start chit chatting, you know, where they start having this banter. They tell stories. That would be kind of interesting. You know, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I, I guess it's. I mean, they could go. There's a lot of different directions they can go with it. You know, because we're all gamers, we're immediately assuming it's all about the gaming, but it might not be. True. I don't know. I guess that's so, that's the only interest I have in this show. As I said, like right now, I, I, there was a lineup somewhere of the eight or nine games that were on the first season that were known, and, and they were pretty much all ones, you know, again, they're just so commonplace to most gamers that, yeah. that it's, you know, it's not going to really be aimed at any any of the typical BGG crowd, but, you know, yeah. it's... And, you know, it could still be entertaining if, if you like that sort of thing. Yeah, and of the first show, like, you know, I I, I really like Will Wheaton. You know, I think he's pretty funny. 
and I like his blog and the other people on the show I really didn't know who they were at all um I know that he's going to have some people that he's worked with like uh uh Colin Ferguson I think is his name you know that I that I'd, I'd probably just be looking for ways to promote the show into a little bit wider uh, just like with the um the one guy that's on there who has this huge StarCraft following or uh, however many people it is, that I think was responsible for a large number of the hits. If he continues to get other people like that involved where they bring their audience in, even if it's for one show, right. that's going to then expose that many more people. So he needs to branch out from having the same guests on show after show and and get other new blood into the mix. And again, that's sort of either direction is sort of interesting. If it keeps us the same people seeing how they evolve and their tastes evolve and how, how deep a game they'll get into over a year or two. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, if he really wants to grow the show bigger, I think that's not the way to go that he needs to keep new blood in, in the mix. Um, and, and that's the kind of thing that would actually make me tune in because if right. next week when he's doing Catan, it's a different cast of people and maybe, you know, it's uh, Nathan Fillion or something, you know, right? I mean, <laughs> right. there's some geek tie-in there, right, or whatever. Oh, yeah, I'm curious. I wonder what, you know, I, I obviously know everything about Catan, but what does somebody like Nathan Fillion think of playing? You know, that would be interesting to see. I would tune in for that. I would at least click the show and start watching. And it would be, I don't say kind of disappointing, but if every show he's, like, explaining, like, these basic games to everybody – to me shows that these people are not gamers and they're just going on the show just because, you know, either they know them or something to do. If somebody, let's say like Nathan Fillion comes on and he knows how to play small world. I mean, that would be cool because to me that would show like, Hey, this person's actually a real gamer. Yeah. Or, or maybe they had a session, you know, even if it was a first session and we'll, hey, you know what, let's not film it. Let's just play it. You learn it. If you, know, you like it. Um, but there are other gamers out there. The, the guy from The Big Bang Theory that runs the comic book store on the show, which mm -hmm. obviously Will Wheaton knows uh, since he's been on the show too, that seems like a natural fit. Obviously, he's not a big-time actor. I mean, he's if you haven't watched every episode of Big Bang Theory, you wouldn't even know who I'm talking about probably. But right. but again, it's just he's been at some cons and, and things like that. So right. it would be uh, different, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, I'd certainly rather see more notable actors, as I would, probably anybody would. But there's yeah. only a, I don't, you know I don't think we're going to see a Harrison Ford on the show or something yeah. like that, you know. But but we might see somebody like uh, Rich Summer. Yeah. That that goes into the I, next thing. Yeah, the G4. They did a, did another show. Yeah, I saw that. They did another show of Game Night, where they covered Memoir 44. I didn't watch. See, that's where you got to have regular shows. I've, <laughs> I guess I lost interest. Was it good? Was it? Is it worth seeing? Should our listeners go watch it? It, it was good. You know, I, I I enjoyed it. You know, for somebody who's in the hobby, I mean, it's mm, basic, nothing new, and you know, yeah. it, it's really there to kind of introduce people. It's very much yeah. Here's this thing like you may not, this whole world you may not know about. You know, go Google it for more information. You'll wind up on Board Game Geek and be totally lost because no new person can ever navigate that site. Yeah, and in this one, he covered uh, Memoir 44, and he did talk about the online very, uh, version also. Uh, Summoner Wars and uh, Confusion. Nice. The uh, Espionage and Deception in the Cold War. 
Speaking of that, though, I, I remember reading on a, a BGG thread, the, well, really the big one on Table Talk, which was full of a lot of negativity, including by from other, well, at least one other video reviewer. And somebody had made a, a comment, which I thought was a really good comment, where they said, is this really what we want? All those people that watch the show and then come to BGG, you know, to find out more, is this what, what we want them to find? You know, when they click here and they see the tabletop, you know, it's going to be the natural place or uh, you know, <laughs> they, were they go. Yeah, and then it's all this. You know, uh, you know, this is going to destroy the you know the, the world, the board game world as we know it, and that type of stuff. And but I, my my counter to that, I guess, is what I said just a moment ago, which is no, because all the people that find Board Game Geek aren't even going to be able to find that thread because it's it's that hard to maneuver through if you don't know the site. Oh yeah. So I, I really think they are. Actually, they'll they'll see the the landing page and then they'll. Well, the landing page has like nine thousand links on it. I mean, <laughs> they really need to have like this initial page that we all as regulars just bypass, right? We just go mm-hmm. right to our regular page. But this kind of landing page, it's like, okay, you know, welcome to Board Game Geek. There's this great world of board games. You know, click here for your introduction to what this is all about. You know, click here for an explanation of what. You know, you're you know almost like a a board gamers 101 introduction, and and then you know uh, tutorials on how to use the main features of the site, uh, and and like any good site or software program, I guess I should say more is, you know, all the all the advanced yeah. features need to be hidden by default, so it's not overwhelming, and it's not very intuitive for certain things that you do. Like uh, I, I went to add a, a geek buddy. Uh, earlier today, and I, I literally spent a couple minutes trying to find where <laughs> where you add something. Well, there's I was going back and forth because there's five different ways. I mean, you could yeah. just there's a shortcut to it on the user, but uh, but even then, the problem is when you subscribe to somebody, the, the you know the the BGG stalking as as I call it, you immediately get everything that they do, and trying to figure out how to edit it so you only get what you want. So like you want to you want to see all the new video posts Tom Vassell does, but you don't want to know every time he posts in a forum. Uh, you know, that's not really intuitive how you how you do that. I mean, I think most people probably don't even know. I uh, and and the ones the ones you know like I had to care enough to finally figure it out, and then I did, and you know just because it got unmanageable at a certain point, and that's you know one of the other I think the issues with the layout of the site. Um, you know, I, I've also still argued that there's there's certain questions that some people would want to ask about geek buddies and other things like that that are really I don't think you can even do. Like if I if uh, um, you know even even with you, like we talk about games on the show, and I might want to if I if I just purchased a game, uh, uh, Lords of Waterdeep, for instance, right? I purchased it, and I go, you know, I wonder if Rob, uh, not just Rob, but I wonder which of my friends out there own this game as well. Because you know maybe those are the ones that would be the one, right ones to invite you know for because they've already learned it or they're going to obviously be interested in it because they own it too, uh, or I'm just otherwise curious who's bought this in my group. It'd be great to be able to click something that tells me who I know owns it already. And to any way I've discovered, it, the only way you can do that is if everybody's rated it or, or put a comment in. Then you do the Geek Buddy analysis, and it kind of shows you what everybody said about it and what they rated it. But most of the gamers I game with don't rate their games or comment on them, so that doesn't work. Uh, going back to uh, Game Night, the, the one thing that they covered on this show that was kind of cool was that the whole episode was pretty much centered on two-player games. So that's I know that's something that is often hit on BGG in particular. Maybe they should have made it like uh, you know two player games that I can play with my wife. <laughs> yeah, 
<laughs> that would have been a good topic for the show. But uh, you know, it was it was pretty cool, and you know, it, it follows the same pretty much pattern that the other two shows that they had. Wow, man, this must have been what like September of last year, or no, October, November. It was a it long was. time back. Yeah. Yeah. So it was uh, it was quite maybe like six months ago that they had the other two shows. So uh, I, I enjoyed it. It was it was a good time. Uh, definitely more gateway-ish and you know we'll see what they do on the next coming shows Jeff, uh, I think we've been playing some games lately. Yeah, so we had a, uh, well, I guess you would call it a, a mini-con of sorts. No, table-con. Yeah. Not yeah. mini-con, well, table-con mini- 2012. A, a mini-con, meaning you know, we didn't have 7,500 people there. But, but yeah, table-con 2012, I, 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 uh, I guess that's the name. You know, we, Last year we called it table-con 2011, so... <laughs> Did it happen a year after? Uh, well, okay, year? okay. It was, it was the first con. one, so it was just TableCon. So well, it wasn't really my gig, but I was there. So I'm, I'm naming yeah. it since it wasn't otherwise named. It's TableCon 2012. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so, it was. Uh, it was. Uh, I, you know, I actually didn't know as quite as many people were going to be there as as turned out to be there. Um, I, I guess that's probably one of those things where uh, the host. Uh, you know, uh, a gaming buddy of ours, you know, invites a bunch of people and figures out, you know, not everybody's going to come out, but it seems like just about everybody that was invited did. And, you know, it was, it was a good number of people there. Um, we had, you know, Stephen Conway and, and uh, David from The Spiel and Ryan Metzler from The Dice Tower and his wife. And, of course, the, the real, real uh, stars, uh, Rob from The Sport Game Life. Who? Cool. Yeah. <laughs> who? <laughs> Rob who and Jeff who? Yeah. The 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 two people that were there that everybody was going, who are those guys over there? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I've uh they were they were all there last year too and uh I think we've I've otherwise gamed with uh Ryan a couple of times cuz they're uh he's he's pretty local and of course the other other guys are just down in Indy, so uh, it's not too bad. That other gaming capital. Yeah, yeah. It seems like uh, Chicagoland's doing pretty well for uh, people now. There's more more voices out there representing Chicago. Uh, in any case, uh, oddly enough, we ended up the the games we played. We all both played in all of them together, so it was kind of kind of convenient for purposes of commentary for the oh, for the podcast. <laughs> we didn't necessarily set out to do it that way, but it yeah, sort of ended up retrospect. that way. <laughs> uh, so yeah, we got uh, five games played, which is pretty good. And I mean, it always amazes me, like whenever I, you know, I've, I've gone to these gaming events, I always sort of go there with the impression, I'm going to play 20 games. <laughs> you ever get like that? Yeah, well, if if, uh, if you stick to fillers and, you know, rounds of uh, T2 or whatever, then you can, yeah. you can manage that. But yeah, I mean, we, we played a couple longer games, a couple games with a lot more players. So there was a, a game that rhymes with Tyrannosaurus Rex. That uh, took a decent amount of time too. So, yes. And then there's the always the you know the chatting or waiting, 
waiting for a game to finish up a little bit so you can start the next one. Eating, you know, that and all that stuff. So Absolutely. Okay. So I guess let's go through them in order then. We'll talk a bit about let's. our experience. Uh, and I don't really see any reason to not do it in the order we played them, so... <laughs> Let's let's do that. So uh, most of these games are current games, uh, games of interest. So the first one we played was Lords of Waterdeep, a, uh, a game I've I've actually played a couple of times now. I played it with my wife. Uh, we we played it uh, at TableCon. And which what were your thoughts on that, Rob? How would you start it off? You know, I think we talked about it briefly last show. Was that the last one where you did the unboxing? Yeah, yeah, we had. Yeah. I hadn't played it at the time, so it was yeah, all. Neither have I. It was all hype, <laughs> uh, you know, all wishful, uh, hoping that the, it would turned out to be what I wanted it to be. Yeah, because I think we talked about the components and of the weird box that it came in, the inserts and all. Right, we covered and, all the components, but not the gameplay. Absolutely, and and that was my first time playing it uh, that we played there, and I was really pleasantly surprised. I. Wasn't quite sure 100% of what I was going to think of the game, you know, how enjoyable it was going to be, but I really, really, really liked it. You know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of the worker placement games, yes. and, you know, this is very much that type of game. Uh, basically, you know, you got your little cubes that, you know, are your various colors, and of course, you don't want to call them orange cubes, you want to call them. Fighters, yeah. Well, <laughs> fighters and, and I wizards think I was, and rogues, and I was the one that was arguing for the colors being good color choices, right? I mean, yeah. I, I, at least if it you're familiar sense. with it, you know. That, so, so for listeners that don't know, it's the white cubes are the the priests, which again I think is fitting the in the clerics, right? In, in classic D and D terms, I guess you know that they always have the white robes or whatever, you know. Um, or the the holy white color. Uh, similarly, the the rogues are black because they're you know hiding in the shadows and the darkness and kind of have the black cloak and that kind of thing. So that made thematic sense to me. And the the wizards are purple, which is I mean a little bit uh, harder to draw the D and D correlation. I, I'd have to go back and look at really old stuff. I, I mean to me purple fits because I always think of like uh, even. Mickey Mouse's hat, isn't it purple, right? Fantasia and all of that, or Merlin's hat, or is pur- purple, right? Classically, mm-hmm. I don't know. I just I don't... there's always like the the purple wizard hat to me. It's kind of uh, right. not necessarily the the you know uh, clothing or armor or whatever, but the the one that was more odd for me was the orange, the choice of orange for the fighter, which you know I I thought you would go either something like silver for the you know, plate mail, chain mail type thing, or you would go like a, a, a nude natural cube for more of the barbarian Conan kind of fighter. I'm not sure where orange fits. You know, I was thinking maybe I'll think leather armor or something like that. It's kind of close. It was kind of a darker orange anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, but I was able to keep it straight in my head that way. I, I Even a couple turns into the first game, I, I still really try to thematically think about them as those different classes but right uh, yeah it it takes a while to you know at least halfway through the game to really get a feel I, for what's what and remember con- considering that there were add-ons to other games like uh defenders of the realm even with painted minis and such i could see that if this game series becomes successful enough that they do go and release 
may, probably not painted ones, but maybe you know some kind of figures that to replace the cubes for those that want it. Of course, that makes it feel more like an Ameritrash game and less like a Euro, but I, I could see that there would be, for thematic reasons, some people that would prefer that. And I don't know if I care at this point, but I would probably consider it if it was part of an expansion that had other things as well. Because that, that's probably my one negative point on the game is there wasn't really a lot of need to read the flavor text. It was pretty limited anyway. There and, was flavor text? Yeah, yeah. It's like one line on the bottom in real small font. Yeah. <laughs> people See? read that? Yeah. No, a lot of people don't. Uh, I, I didn't really... I mean, we didn't in our game at all, but when I played it the first time with my wife, I, I kind of scanned it um, just to see what it was all about. But you're a flavor texter. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> that's it. No, I'm uh, I'm uh, always hopeful that there's something more to the the theme in a Euro game where it's not just pasted mm-hmm. on. And this is a harder game for me to defend on that level because on one level I could say it worked for me. Like I felt it felt thematic enough for me. Uh, you know, the inn, you're going to the inn uh, to get quests, right? That's where you hear the rumors about what's what's happening out there. You get your quest. There's, you know, buildings that sort of do different things. But, of course, at the end of the day, as I like to say, it's still you need two black cubes and one white cube and one orange cube and a, and a purple cube, right, to complete the quest. Right. Uh, and, and, and five bucks. So... Where where thematically it was disappointing for me is in terms of like the the wizard doesn't really cast spells at, at all. You know, there's nothing really of that level that happens in the game. But that said, it it still felt different to me than other worker placement games, and it still and maybe it was because this had the pictures on the cards that helped a bit. Where like even the Ravenloft games and those games, you know, where the cards were just this blank text, right? So I like the the artwork that was on Lords of Waterdeep. I thought that added a little it's bit. very nice, yes. Yeah, it was nice. But I, again, I, I think I, I just, it's one of those games where I see room for an expansion that adds, develops the thematic aspects better, right? And, and it's only okay. going to be able to do that by adding complexity, which uh, this game is fairly uh, on the light side as worker placement games go. So I think there's room to add some, some more, particularly maybe in modules where you don't have to do all of them. But maybe there's a spellcasting, you know, addition type of thing, right? That would be interesting to see how that works out. Or maybe there's some sort of campaign element where typically what happens when you complete a quest is you're usually giving back the cubes. Some of them generate new ones, but there's really no continuity from one quest to the next, right? But maybe there's a sequence of quests that are a campaign, and uh, there, there aren't really items in the game, right? So... That would be another one where maybe maybe now I have, uh, in the same way that I have a spell for a wizard, maybe there's an item I can give this particular cube, right? Or a, a cube sits on a little square disc and that represents, you know, a, a better class or capable fighter, or whatever right. the case might be. I, you know, I could, I could see them doing something, you know, like you said with the spells, where it's, you know, spells or artifacts or enchantments, which... Um, like I know some games like to have the effects that last, you know, they're not just over at your turn. So, you know, it might say like, you know, for every money you get an additional money or, you know, something yeah, like that. I mean, I could definitely see them doing that. And, you know, if they do come out with an expansion, which 
looks like they probably will. Oh, they will. will. They will. The game's been well received. And so that's the only criticism I really have about the game. I think outside of that, that I had talked about last show how one of the reasons I was so excited about Lords of Waterdeep was to see a worker placement game that had just really, really, really deep theme, tightly interwoven with the mechanics in a in a, a setting that I used to spend a lot of time with, which was Dungeons and Dragons and Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. So um, on that level, the game did disappoint me a little, right? I, I, I can see that it, it could have been a lot more than it was, but and that's why I say I see potential for an expansion. But that said, everything else about the game I, I really, really did enjoy. It has a lot of interaction for me in a way... That's where I see the the comparison to Kalis, like a Kalis light, uh, because there is this uh, balance between you you own a building versus you go to somebody else's building. Uh, so if you go to a building, you get this better benefit than going to the generic buildings, but at the same time, you give the owner a bonus. In addition to that is the dilemma between using your own building, because, okay, I can use my own building, I get that bonus. Now they don't, but it might be more efficient to use their building Right. And then let them get use my building so that I get the bonus then from them using my building. Because uh, ultimately I get more stuff that way. Yeah. So you kind of have to weigh, do I need to deny them more than I need to maximize my own stuff uh, by almost not using my own building? So uh, there's some interaction there that's that's interesting. And then there's, yeah. of course... And, and for me also, you know, I had this strategy of like, okay, I, I want to fill out this quest. I need these two spots. I need that building and, and this spot over here to get my, you know, uh, adventures. And you, you sit there. I mean, I was sitting there like just waiting. I'm like, I hope he doesn't pick that. Oh, well, he picked it. Yeah, and, you know. and that's why the, so the first players can be important. And, and there's a, a you know, a, a metagame about that. And the bonuses, there's a bonus card where you get bonuses for certain things and different people are going to have different ones. So it's supposed to balance it a little bit out. Uh, and, and the card play with the quest, you know, there's, uh, they don't they don't call them tactics cards, but what are the, what are the cards called? Uh, intrigue? Yeah, the intrigue cards, where one of them is just a quest that slows you down. So you kind of get derailed on the side quest that's not as efficient a return on on you know, the, the party members that you have to commit to it. And that kind of buys some time while I, it's, so it's a little bit of the take that, I guess, aspect of the game. And and then I can continue to, on my sort of more efficient quests. Because, yeah, I mean, some of these games are, they're very much like solo games. So right, right. Cards, and so mix for, it up a little bit. For worker placement, I think a solid Euro for me, I, I don't, there, it's, there's a little of the take that, but not enough that I go, it's it's half party game or half Ameritrash or whatever the case is. I, you know, it still really feels like a solid worker placement game, like like it's fresh despite some of the comparisons to Kalis made. I, you know, it, it really stands completely on its own. I mean, even there's enough else that's different. You know, it's you might as well call every worker placement game, you know, like Kalis, right, at that level. So, uh, but... Where where I approve of the Kalis comparison more so than maybe some of the other games it was compared to, say like Carson City, is just because the, it's in a positive view of the fact that there's some more interaction in Kalis, and that's one of the reasons why people like it, I think, or at least one of the reasons I like Kalis. And so I see that here in Lords of Waterdeep, and that's one of the th- things I like the most about Lords of Waterdeep. Uh, 
at the same time, which I think is worth noting, it's rare that my wife plays a game once and immediately declares how much she loves the game, especially if it's like fantasy themed. I mean, she's not a big D&D person at all. I guess you have to know a bit about what my like, wife likes and doesn't like, but you know, she's not really into conflict-themed games or fantasy games or science fiction games. So that's uh, I thought was a, a, a positive thing to find out. Mm-hmm. And it's got a fantastic insert. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if I haven't said that like 50 times already in the last two shows. Yep. Just want to say, you know, I said it a whole bunch of times, I, I really, really enjoyed this game. And, you know, granted I'm a big fan of worker placement games. I mean, this thing was fun. Uh, it had a really good mix of a bunch of different mechanics. You know, you had your cards, the you know, your uh, Lord of Waterdeep card. You had your intrigue cards. You had your quests. It kind of mixed it up a little bit. You know, you could do a couple jabs at the other person, and it and it wasn't. It, it's they were the they're not of, overwhelming jabs. It's not like they're right. out of the game now because you played one card on them. Because yeah. you know, I, I got a buddy of mine that like if if there's like a jab ability, that's all he would do. He would just jab, 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 jab to the point of like ruining the game. And it's like you, you can't really do that in this game, which is nice. Yeah, there's because there's a limited number of those cards that you usually get. And of that deck of cards, there's only so many that are even the type that you would play against another player directly. Right. So, uh, And just as many of them benefit others. You'll, you know, you'll take a couple cubes, but everybody else gets one. Uh, or they're able to sacrifice one for some victory points or things of that nature. So they're not... There, there's plenty of positive ones in addition to the, the few that are kind of a take yeah. that element. So, yeah. so, you know, overall, you know, I, I love the theme, love the game. The production is excellent. Um, I'm, I'm very happy with the game. It's reasonably priced. And yeah. Oh, it, it was very, fantastic. very reasonably play, priced. My, that was another thing my wife commented on. She just did not believe me when I told her how much it cost. She insisted I was lying to her. <laughs> uh, I mean, she really, I mean, I kid, I, you know, but this time it wasn't, and I, I, now I forget, but it was online, it was 36 bucks or something like that. Yeah, I mean, you would, like, she in, insisted this was like a $55 game yeah. discounted just because of the quality of all the components and the number of things you had. So, uh, yeah, I mean, um, impressive, interesting to see what else they uh, come out with. I think this is a good, a good trend now. The, well, actually, this... I, th I think they're setting the bar in a lot of respects, you know, and, you know, so those companies that come out with those 60 70 $80 games with the junk components in them, shame on you. Well, and what these guys know, do. briefly to mention, too, uh, it's weird that Dungeons and Dragons, I mean, I, obviously, most people that follow RPGs knows that the latest version of D&D was kind of a big failure and everybody's been not everybody, but a huge, it's basically fallen to second place. Uh, and another, you know, this other RPG Pathfinder. Yeah. Really? Pathfinder. <laughs> I, obviously I don't play RPGs anymore, but I used to do a lot of uh, D and D and that's interesting that it, it kind of falls out of the limelight and the RPGs, you know, section, but now in the board game world, you know, not everybody cares for them, but, but really I would say I, I would, I would go on record saying they haven't had one failure yet. Because uh, Conquest of Nereth, which is their sort of battle game, brilliant, brilliant game. There's a lot of really innovative things they've done to make those type of games play faster. One of the biggest complaints about an Axis and Allies and some of the other games are just how long they are and 
they've fixed a lot there. You've got Lords of Waterdeep now, which was the the Euro version, which lots of people like. And then of course you have the more Ameritrash co-op combination, which was the Castle Ravenloft, which again plenty of people like, and it got more complex as expansions were released. They evolved the system. So across the board, all with good quality, all various different types of games with the D&D property, and to an extent, better received in the board game world now than than really where the role-playing game sits. That's okay. interesting. Oh, absolutely. And and to see that, I, I don't see that slowing down then, uh, that we're probably going to see quite a bit more. Uh, and in fact, there is, isn't, is it uh, Dungeon Command or I, there's another there's another game coming out soon, you know, sort of regurgitating other components that they had, but putting them into uh, you know another board game concept. So that's uh, encouraging as a as a fantasy slash D and D fan to to see to see that moving over into the board game space successfully. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Moving on to the next game, then. All right, let's do it. Okay. Tyrannosaurus Rex. Jeff. <laughs> TRJ. Yeah. Uh, so, see. so that's the. Uh, let's see. What is this game called? Twilight Imperium Rex: Final Days of an Empire. I don't know. There's some more words to it, but <laughs> also known as Rex. Yeah, most people just call it Rex. This is the the retheme of Dune, a game I played quite a bit of, you know, 20 years ago. And, you know, I have a, a lot of fond memories of that game, but, you know, haven't played it in 20 years, so was very curious to see what I thought of this game. We we played it with five, so that's a good was number. Was five or six? Five. Five? Yeah. Yeah, we left right. off. Uh, you know, it's again, it's been so long for me with Dune, it's, it's, it's hard for me to say with Dune. I forget now why six is an absolute, but... In Rex terms, I'll you know I'll go on record saying uh, because of the player powers and such, there is absolutely no problem playing with five. So, you know, I, I wouldn't even, I wouldn't at all say that six is the ideal number. Six is a good number, certainly wouldn't turn it down. But five is every bit as good as six. And one of the reasons why the the player count is important here is just because of the way the special powers play off of one another, and they're they're so different than the other ones. But you you haven't played Dune, correct? That is correct. Yeah. So, or at least not the board game. Right. The so, video game I have, but yeah, and that was good that game, was by the way groundbreaking in its own right too. So yes, it was. Uh, but what did yeah, you? Yeah, that's that's a very good point. I mean, the board game was groundbreaking, and then the video game like started a whole new. Yeah, it was the first real time strategy game. Yeah. Of of note, I mean, I'm sure there was some small independent game somewhere. I forget the history on that, but it was definitely the first widespread, well-known, mm-hmm. real-time strategy game. Yes. So what did you think of Rex? You know, I had heard a lot of things about Dune and how great it was, so I was really excited to try out Rex. I know that, you know, there were some changes that were done, you know, between the games and, you know, outside of the the retheming, and I, I, I don't know, I... You know, there was during the course of the game, there were um, uh, a couple very unhappy moments for me, <laughs> right? In terms of uh, gameplay, where things sort of uh, didn't work out very well for me, and uh, yeah, and unfortunately, and and that's probably my warning on the game is, I think it's a game that takes at least 
a second play. Oh, absolutely. Because in that first play, you realize the things, the assumptions you made about how you should play the game that are just completely wrong. Uh, and so I, I want to say, and I, I, this was a game where I was, well, no, one other person had played Dune 20 years ago, but right. I was the only one who knew this game, and I uh, probably had more Dune experience than that one other player. So I immediately kind of knew, foresaw that about three of of the people playing when a particular thing happened, I'm like, yep, yeah, they're going to hate the game. <laughs> so, cause I know how that goes. And yeah, I, I mean, I wasn't one of them, was I? You were one of them, but your mis- <laughs> your mistake, uh, well, your mistake was when you, you attacked and you put like 12 guys all in one territory early in the game. The reason is because at that point in the game, you have no, nobody spent their trader cards. So, you know, you'll play a leader and, and that's exactly what happened to you, right? You, oh, absolutely, yeah. So you had this combat you should have won, and because your leader was a traitor, they went immediately, everybody dies. And what isn't apparent is you start out the game and you have, all, you know, basically everybody has 15 troops. Some are on the board, some aren't, but they're all alive. And if you go and attack with 12 and they die, there's a cost associated with bringing them back alive. And not just a cost, but usually time. Which is could be several turns, right? And and, and that, there's not many turns, right? Not at all. Uh, the the game is a force end at eight turns, right? So uh, that that's that kind of timing element and the the real value to a particular uh, army is really hard to get a feel for if you haven't played at least one game. And then just how uh, deadly. The traitor aspect is, or the weapon aspect. When you when you uh, do combat, um, there's a mechanic where you choose an attack card and a defense card. And if you have an attack card and the opponent doesn't have the matching defense card, their leader dies and doesn't count to the total. Uh, but at the same time, you're you're dialing these dials to commit how many troops you're going to kill. Uh, and even that, you know, the first time you play, you just immediately think, well. Wouldn't I always dial the number that guarantees that I win? And that's, uh, often you'll do that. But if you do that all the time, you're you're going to be in that same situation you were in because of the trader, which is you've lost too many guys and and you've lost your um, you know just strength. So yeah, you won this battle, but so what? Because now you've only got two guys left on the board, and just the next guy is just going to stomp on you in turn. So it really is a game of kind of, uh, I mean, I hate to say there's almost like a memory element. <laughs> there's so many facets to it. Cause yeah, but that's the thing that I was having trouble with because there it's, it's not as okay. We originally came from Lords of Waterdeep, which is worker placement. Yeah. And you know, you're doing, concrete things to get certain things. I mean, everything is straightforward. Whereas, you know, in Rex, there's a lot of well, unknowns, a lot of twists. The, Everybody's yeah, the, got the, special powers. And... The, the positive was I explained the game in, you know, 10 minutes, which, you know, people kept complimenting me on. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and it is actually pretty light as, as the rule books go. I, I think it's 16 pages, but there's, you know, an eight page story and there's, pages of examples and like the core of the rules is really only like five or six pages. So Mm -hmm. for fantasy flight games, most people are like, really, that's it. There's just not a lot of rules to this. Uh, But there is a lot of extra 
complexity and understanding, you know, the, the, the strategies in the game and, and what makes sense to do and what doesn't. But where I was going with the memory element is there's really what, what you almost call testing the waters where you, you have to kind of learn a little bit about your opponent. So you, you go in and you just kind of, kind of prick at them with, with uh, one or two troops just to see, are they always going to play their strongest leader? Right. Even in that situation, do they go ahead and play the a certain attack card? So now you know what weapon they have, so you can try to get the, uh, you know, or, or try to at least play the the corresponding one to match them. Or, uh, you know, if you lose, then they lose that card, and you find a way to do that. Uh, you know, you you basically try to learn a little bit about each player and how they play, and then you manipulate that to win battles. So that's ultimately, uh, I mean, I won the game of course which of course <laughs> I, well i say of course because if it were again if it was just total random garbage then anybody could have won right never having played before but going in as the most experienced player you would you would kind of hope that that player would would win regardless of the other random elements in the game and you know, I, I only is... barely won right but well you know this is the type of game that i think it's very unlikely for somebody to win just based on dumb luck. Well, if everybody's a new player, that will happen because, again, mm. you won't... There's a timing element, and I manipulated that, where if you're one of the last players in the round... and So basically, the way you win the game is you, there's five strongholds on the board. If you control three of them, you win. Uh, if you're in alliance, you, you need four, and if you're in a three-way alliance, you need all five. So... We hadn't even gotten to alliance cards yet. It was the end of the fourth round. Yeah, we didn't get a single one. Yeah, they were. <laughs> we looked at the deck after the fact, and it was going to be all the next turns. Uh, but in, in and that's a whole different part of the discussion. But in this game, anyway, what happened was I had one uh, stronghold, and then I had taken a. I had moved in and attacked you in a, in a second one, and at the same time. Because I had that one, I had airlifted uh, a guy to a third. Well, really, what the situation at the beginning of the turn was, I had mine that I started the game with. I was the yellow player, the Hakan. And I had just attacked and won against you, correct? I want to say, yeah. yeah so right. I had those two. So now anybody watching should realize that if I get a third one, I win. And so uh, as they should have, the uh, the Emperor, the red character, I forget what they're called in Rex, but he went and attacked my home base because it had been weaker for attacking you and, and yours. And it was very likely he was going to win. He moved in his double strength mechanized infantry and all of that. Uh, but again, everybody kind of just wrote it off as, well, even if he gets another one, I'll be at two because I'm losing this third one, right? And so everybody kind of then just went for trying to maximize their own thing and kind of forgot about me. You know, I'm not going to win. And, and I think nobody really looked at the fact that there's nothing that stops me from potentially getting two more on my turn and just giving up that other one. And so that's exactly what I did. I just, you know, I literally committed the worst leader to that other one. I dialed, you know, zero. I didn't care. I didn't even commit cards. I just let myself lose that other stronghold. I... Uh, uh, the stronghold I had taken from you, Rob, was the one that had uh, planes, so I could move right. f further than normal, which again was a, a, a nuance that people would have to have remembered. But it came up enough in the game that I think they should have. Yeah, normally you, you can only move spaces. right. Normally you can only move two. Uh, 
So, so I, I used that to, to get into one, and then I used my – everybody, once a turn, can drop ship people in. And one of the players that actually – which is one of my favorite little you know, bits of the game is they had blown up the shield for one of the other strongholds. Normally, they're safe locations. Right. Um, and when this fleet comes in and wipes things out, the shield protects you from that. In Dune terms, it was the, the storm that would, that would come. Uh, but but this they had set off the nukes and blown up the shield, so now anybody that was trying to to have the stronghold was would be wiped out once the fleet came back around. So uh, they they had, that had actually just happened, so the timing was perfect. So I drop shipped in behind that. Uh, I grabbed that with I think even just one troop because nobody was even in the vicinity. Uh, I took that with one troop for the drop ship. Uh, used my my movement to fly into the other one four spaces away. And uh, I made a mistake. I really did. I made a mistake. I overcommitted on that, uh, forgetting that you were going coming after. You were the only player left after me. And you you then did the right thing and attacked. I did. Yeah, you attacked me where I had. I, le- I think I left one guy, didn't I, at, at the in the space that yeah. I had taken? Because I was just trying to be the aha. Look at how well I'm going to win. You know, I throw away this whole stack here. I take that with one. I leave one on the one I have, and I I just put this whole stack to make sure that I win. I just slaughter this other place because there was you know five or six troops at that other one that I airlifted into. But uh, but you didn't have a lot of guys left. I think hadn't you lost them maybe with the traitor element or something like that, right? Uh, yeah, initially, I mean, I was almost completely wiped. Actually, I. I think I did get totally wiped out. Yeah, and so what I had to do on, on that battle then is I had been watching again what you had played, and I I, I pretty well knew that you didn't that this uh, laser rifle or whatever it was I had uh, I'd be able to kill your leader. So looking in, you'd put maybe three guys in or four guys, uh, five guys, whatever it was. But I had a leader that was higher than that. So I basically dialed zero because if I had dialed even one, I would have lost the only troop I had. So I put my battle dial to zero. I had this uh, leader and I, I played an attack card. I, I did, in fact, kill your your leader. So then you didn't have enough to beat me and thereby holding onto that territory, I, I won the game with three strongholds. So that's the, the session reports, of, uh, as, as it were. But... Um, you know, continue with what you thought of the game. So <laughs> <laughs> it was long, long. Yeah, I mean, even you know, it, turns with and, five and there players. Were, and there was, I mean, we did spend a lot of time explaining the rules because you really explained it twice. You explained it to me and uh, yeah. Then we the had other more guy. people join the game originally. We were going to play and with then like you, three. Yeah, then you did it again. You were explaining during the rules. I mean, the whole time, I think it was like three and a half hours, right, including the, the game, two which, rules rules explanations yeah so, so yeah it's not i've seen that you know it's not tremendously shorter than dune but it it can be i i, I do like there's several win conditions so if it goes eight turns there's a certain oddly enough the, the player i was playing uh the, the yellow hakan wins if it goes eight turns without a winner but then the the Saul player which is sort of like the indigenous player uh, to the planet, they will win automatically on the eighth turn if they hold just these specific two strongholds. Uh, and then otherwise, it's just the three, four, or five strongholds, depending on the alliance. And one of the things they added, which is, I think, a good addition, and we played with the optional rule, where if you did form an alliance, you have this special win condition. 
And I like that because I, I don't like the idea that three people just arbitrarily agree to to end the game. You know, well maybe they're not enjoying the game, but <laughs> you, you know they go, oh you have you have one, you have one, I have two. Let's you know it's uh, well I guess it'd have to be all five at that point. But whatever it is, you know you just go, oh okay, we'll just agree to win, and then we both win. So this okay. card, this card still makes that possible, but now you can kind of look at that. And uh, so one of them was like have the, uh, you know, least losses, so that you were a very conservative uh, general. And and so if you look at this win condition and you go, okay, well I've got less dead guys than anyone, and that kind of gives you the incentive to go ahead and make the alliance, knowing that okay, even though cooperatively you've you've won you really you're the sole victor now because you kind of s- slap down this card and of course they have won too and they may well think that theirs was achieved but the hardest one has priority over the other one which is again a factor that you can look at and go well mine's the hardest of all of them and i've achieved it so i'm going to be the only victor they will think i won't have had that or have done that um, I, you know the the mechanics around the game are are unique Right, not to say that it's a game for everyone, but it's very different than any other game you're going to play. Oh, absolutely. And that's, I think, again, why people fail to enjoy it in a lot of cases. It, it's definitely not a game for everyone, but if you go into it thinking it's this combat game, it's it's not. At the same time, it's not really a diplomacy game, and it's not. It's it's really does sort of stand aside in its own. You know, category. There's just a, a certain process uh, that you have to go through to um, to go about playing the game, uh, and and some people fall into that uh, you know mode uh, and 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 uh, you know, sort of mental process, thought process, and some people never kind of get how it how you do that. So. Yeah, and and I mean just to throw out there again, the one thing I think again where the game shines is the variable player powers. Never before have I seen a game, uh, you know, then back with Dune or or now with Rex, you know, in between or or since, where there was so much difference between your special abilities and mine, uh, and that where that really drove the game and the alliances within the game, and I think even in our first game we saw that happen. Uh, now again, unfortunately, I think certain powers are better played by new players than others, and I probably made that mistake. So I, I took one of the players that gets a lot of money, and I think it's easier for new players to play with the players that get lots of money uh, than the one that doesn't. So I, I probably should have played uh, like the Saul character because uh, I know he was particularly having trouble at at certain points and not not having the money. Uh, but there's other concessions. Oh, yeah. There's other things like their sh- their troops don't really pay to to get shipped, uh, nor did mine. But theirs in their own way, um, and there's just a certain you know method to it. But uh, of course, there's there's I did explain some of the strategy to the game right, and as we went along, I tried to to introduce some of that. But you know, it's there's enough that with five people playing, you could spend 20 minutes on each different person's you know, best way of playing. So, and and that was admittedly hard for me to do too, because even though I'd played Rex, I hadn't played it uh, that many times. And and the Dune st- doesn't carry over. I mean, Rex, while a retheming of Dune is as much a reimplementation. I mean, the board's very different. There's a lot of tweaks to it. There there are some changes. In every way, it feels like Dune 
I, I, I'm not the biggest Dune theme fan, although I really do like it. Uh, but I don't like it so much that I'm uh, offended by the Twilight Imperium theming, right? I mean, I, oh. you know, I, I need to read the backstory. I think it'd be neat if Fancy Flight gets around to releasing actual novels of their primary you know, information properties. They, they seem to have covered every everything else in their novels, but where's the, you know, Runebound Descent novels? Where's the Twilight Imperium novels, right? The their sort of go-to classic properties. Those are the ones I'm interested in seeing. So uh, in time, I think there might be, uh, you know, more to that. I've not even read the story in the manual, but there's a good eight, ten-page, pretty lengthy background to everything going on in Rex. So very interesting, well-themed game. But again, it's hard for me to put it into any one category. Absolutely. reach the end of part one of the show look for part two of our tablecon 2012 discussion coming soon make sure to check out our website at www.thisboardgamelife.com where you can subscribe to our show with our rss feeds also if you'd like to send us an email where you can ask us a question that we will answer on the show for you send an email to contact at thisboardgamelife.com also send us a voicemail at 754-444-TBGL that's 754-444-8245 and we will play your message on the show and answer any questions you might have and we would just love to hear from you also make sure to check out the BGG Guild and uh, And join it please and join it, that's right and uh, we are now on iTunes so make sure to subscribe to us on iTunes if you have an Apple product and please rate us a five star so we can get featured Uh, that's it thanks Uh, my name is Rob I'll catch you later thanks for listening